0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More than half of Colorado's third graders were behind in learning to read before the pandemic. What's the reason and what's the solution? Then how much power does the state have to restrict the public during the pandemic? And what can businesses do? Like no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service?
1: All guests need to have a mask. So you can still come in off the street and say, hey, I want a cheese
2: pizza. And as long as you're wearing a mask, we'll happily make you that cheese pizza.
3: We
0: answer your Colorado Wonders questions. And journaling during the pandemic isn't just therapeutic, it's recording history.
4: Earrings over or under the face mask. Is this pocket deep enough to hold my hand sanitizer?
0: Plus, making a violin and bow that could be music to the ears of struggling artists. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Only 40 percent of the state's third graders are reading proficiently. That means most of Colorado's young students are behind when it comes to literacy levels. Why? It appears a lot of it has to do with curriculum. That's what a recent investigation by Chalkbeat found. And Chalkbeat's Ann Shimke is here to bring us her reporting. Hi, Ann. Hi. Good to be here i bet a slew of things contribute to this problem and the current state of remote learning because of coronavirus isn't helping but you found one of the main reasons students are falling behind is because there's very little consistency with curriculum right yes
5: that's right and curriculum is certainly not the only reason but it's it definitely factors in what we found in looking at our 30 largest districts as well as some charter school networks is that there's a lot of curriculums being used. Some are low quality, some are so old they're not even for sale anymore. Some have been created by the district and are basically a black box. Parents don't know what's in them. Um, So there's all kinds of problems um, with having, you know, discredited or old or just inconsistent approaches.
0: I can see how that could cause a lot of different kinds of problems. So let's focus on that lack of consistency from district to district. How could this become a problem and how did it happen?
5: So local control is a big reason. We have a long history of local control in Colorado schools. Um, In addition, the state hasn't until very recently taken um, a very strong stand in terms of Curriculum decisions that's slowly changing, but districts really could choose whatever they wanted or nothing at all in some cases. So that's really, I think, where the where it originates. Um, and then there's uh, now there's a new law, and starting next school year, districts are going to have to report to the state which reading curriculum they use, and the state will. Um, the bar the state is using is whether that reading curriculum is supported by science. Mm -hmm. If it is not, the state said it will work with districts to switch to a curriculum that is supported by science. It remains to be seen how how that process is going to go. But the state has said, as long as districts make a good faith effort to switch um, they will not be penalized.
0: Now, do you have a sense of how many curriculums are in use right now in Colorado schools? Yes. So in, in our survey of the 30 largest districts, there were three dozen
5: curriculums in use. And just to give you one specific example, in Denver, um, in kindergarten through third grade, they reported using 12 different curriculums for reading.
0: That is a lot of different curriculums. Now I understand that there are some instances of schools right down the block from each other using different curriculums, and if students are changing schools frequently, it, that's difficult for them to learn in those situations, right? Exactly.
5: So in Denver, which has a share, its share of highly mobile students, yeah, that's exactly the case. You can have a a student moving mid year or multiple times in their kindergarten through third grade experience, and They might be repeating skills they already got or missing skills altogether because of those differences. So that inconsistency is a problem, and it's not just within districts. Sometimes it's even within schools. So, for example, sometimes if teachers are using a weak curriculum, they might try to fill the gaps by going on to Pinterest or Google or teachers pay teachers, and finding lessons to supplement what they have, um, you know, for for their curriculum. So that can mean teachers in classrooms right down the hall are using different approaches or different lessons to fill in in the gap.
0: And it's not just that there are so many different kinds of curriculums. It's also that some of them have been deemed ineffective by outside reviewers. Can you give us an example of what one of those curriculums looks like?
5: Sure. Um, One popular curriculum here in Colorado and elsewhere is informally called Lucy Calkin. The formal name is Units of Study for Teaching Reading. Um, And that curriculum has been around for a long time. Like I said, it's it's very popular. um, But one of the things that it has been heavily criticized for is encouraging students to guess at words um, using the picture or other clues. Um, That is not supported by science. Students shouldn't be guessing what words are. They should be sounding out the words. Um, So that's a a very bad practice, um, but that's a widely used curriculum, and people like it. Um, It's a nicely crafted curriculum. It's got lively lessons. It encourages a love of reading, and I don't think anyone would argue that those are good things, but it omits um, some really important factors, um, and, and I think that's the fundamental problem. It it's really uses some approaches that just aren't supported by science.
0: Now, can you explain some of what's at stake here? Why is it crucial that a child learns to read early on?
5: So reading has... Um, a, a lot of association with future success. And I think that's probably obvious to most, most people. You know, it has an effect on how you do in the rest of your school career, high school graduation, career success. So it has a, a, a lot of connection to those future trajectories that we want kids to have. Um, kids who cannot read well are going to suffer in so many other aspects of their life. Um, So kind of getting it right in early elementary school is is really important. I think one thing we're seeing in Colorado is lawmakers, um, parents of dyslexic students and educators themselves, they're getting frustrated because we just haven't made that much progress in recent years.
0: Like you're saying, it's not just about one subject. Literacy really affects so many areas, not just in school, but in other areas of life as well. You already mentioned that the state has been making moves to crack down on districts. And um, I'm curious what you've heard from school districts that are currently using curriculums not on that list, how they feel about those changes the state is making.
5: I think there's probably a lot of apprehension right now. The state recently released this list of approved curriculum and the lion's share of the publishers whose curriculum did not make that list have appealed. So there's, there's going to be a little fight coming up here in the next uh, month or so and the, the state will review those appeals and it, it may end up approving additional curriculum. I'm sure that districts that use curriculum that did not make the list are, are very nervous right now Um, And and the coronavirus pandemic kind of exacerbates this whole problem because one issue with curriculum is it's expensive. And so with budget cuts forecasted for schools, um, they're not going to be excited to have to make major new curriculum purchases when they're dealing with everything else. I do think the state is, you know, certainly knows that and is going to keep that in mind in terms of granting flexibility, like I said, as long as the districts are making a good faith effort. But I do think it's going to take probably several years to see some wholesale, you know, curriculum shifts mm-hmm. statewide.
0: And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Chalkbeat reporter Ann Shemke recently looked into why Colorado's young students struggle to learn to read. A financial storm is headed straight for Colorado's schools. State income and sales taxes have fallen through the floor as people stayed home during the COVID-19 outbreak. Now the state faces as much as a $3 billion hit. So school districts across the state are preparing for years of steep budget cuts. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin.
3: In January, school districts were preparing for a slight boost in their state revenues. In just a couple of months, it was gone. We've
6: got potentially tens of millions of dollars in financial pain.
3: That's Jefferson County School Superintendent Jason Glass speaking in a Facebook Live presentation recently. Jeffco, with more than 86,000 students, is preparing for a 5-10% to 10% budget cut and maybe more. So uh, just some scenarios to walk you through. Uh, One
6: is if we were... Let's say
3: it's only 5%. Glass says that could mean dipping into one-time cash reserves, adding two furlough days in a year, slashing programs, and staff pay cuts. Deeper cuts than 5% would mean layoffs, which Glass hopes doesn't come to pass.
6: When we start laying people off, it has a ripple effect through the whole uh, community and and our local economy.
3: The real depth of cuts to K-12 depends on how state lawmakers, in a few weeks, spread the cuts among competing priorities. No matter what, they'll be painful. Many districts never recovered from the Great Recession. That's because state lawmakers have withheld $8 billion from schools since 2008 in order to balance the state budget. That's hundreds of millions of dollars Jeffco was supposed to have.
6: And we still have not recovered completely from that cut. Um, And so this is going to compound those cuts that we felt during during the Great Recession.
3: Districts say now, with the fallout from COVID-19, everything is on the table. Furlough days, four-day school weeks, merging schools, and depending on the district, cutting sports and arts.
2: We are in a very, very dire financial situation.
3: Chuck Carpenter is Denver's executive director of finance. He says the worst case scenario would be a 5% decrease. That's $61 million. Chief financial officer Jim Carpenter says freezing the raises that Denver teachers fought for during a three-day strike last year would save $11 million.
6: These would require, of course, hard work with each of the unions and reopening that contract.
3: Also on the table in Denver is possibly consolidating smaller schools. The idea of signing off on that without community input rankles some board members like Reverend Bradley Lorvik.
7: I'm thinking of just getting a taboo buzzer. And anytime I hear the word consolidation, I'm just going to, eh, because that's not how we need to be looking at this.
3: The option couldn't be implemented until 2021. So directors, I, I want to remind us of our task down in Douglas County. Our task is to narrow these down and we're we're not getting there. Board <laughs> chair David Ray is pushing his colleagues to whittle down a list of over 30 budget cutting strategies. During a board meeting, members struggle over prioritizing the cost cutting options.
6: We're facing this in the midst of a of a state that for several years now has not fully funded public education, and so it, it makes perfectly sense that we're really having a hard
3: time with this task. Board member Krista Holtzman says some of the proposed cuts are things that help students' mental health and attendance.
4: You know, not having transportation to high school sports at all, not having middle school sports, not supporting our special programs, all of those things would just really negatively impact the educational experience we provide our students.
3: Board members were divided on whether the district should consider a four-day school week. Susan Meek said such a dramatic change needs community input first. Still, she argued that the board can't rule out anything because cuts could be much higher than they're projecting.
8: Realistically, I think we should be planning for $30 million because that can happen. I think it could easily happen.
3: School board members across the state are working blind right now. They don't know what enrollment will be, which determines funding. They don't have the manpower to fully research how each cut will impact classrooms. And Superintendent Thomas Tucker says they don't know yet how much they have to cut.
6: We simply don't know. We don't know the future. We simply don't know exactly what this number is going to be at the end.
3: School districts will have to finalize next year's budgets by the end of June. I'm Jenny Brundine, CPR News.
0: Stay at home, wear a mask, stay six feet apart, limit travel. These guidelines have become a part of everyday life. But they also continue to prompt questions through Colorado Wonders. Some wonder whether the state or counties have the right to impose these rules. Others wonder if their grocery store or hardware store should be cracking down on people who don't follow the rules. In both cases, the answer is yes. CPR editor Kelly Griffin, who manages Colorado Wonders, has been looking into this. Welcome, Kelly. Glad to be here. First, let's talk about the question of rights. People ask, what right does the state or the public health department have to tell me to wear a mask or close my business or other things?
9: That was certainly the question of a restaurant owner in Castle Rock just this past Sunday. She opened for a Mother's Day brunch against state and county orders, and she had a packed restaurant with really no face masks in sight. She told a reporter for Community News that she had done her time, stayed home more than two weeks, and that was enough. But yesterday, Governor Polis shut down the restaurant indefinitely for violating public health orders. Still, we've heard in Colorado Wonders from people who simply don't believe the state has the authority to set these broad restrictions.
0: So the governor shut down this restaurant. Meantime, under the current orders, restaurants can be open for carryout only at this stage of the pandemic for most of Colorado. Is the governor operating in a gray area of the law?
9: Not gray at all. Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser told me, It's very clear that state and local officials have the right to enforce rules in a public health emergency. The state constitution invests the power in the governor in Article 4, Section 2, and the legislature passed the Colorado Disaster Emergency Act, which also covers it.
7: What many people don't realize is that we have long traditions of public health authority and the police power of the states going back really till the early 1900s. The basic idea is if to protect the overall public health, we have to impose certain restrictions. That is acceptable. And then there's also, obviously, the emergency power is granted to the governor to protect the public in the face of an emergency, such as a pandemic. That's a tried and true principle. When he said
0: tried and true, he means literally put on trial, correct?
9: Yes. Courts have ruled in favor of this power in Colorado and elsewhere in the country in the past. And in fact, the principal was on trial in Colorado in this pandemic. A Denver man, Michael Lawrence, asked a federal court to block the governor's stay-at-home order issued in March. Lawrence told the court it violated his constitutional rights of free assembly, of religion because his church suspended mass, and it cost him his job. Federal Judge Daniel Domenico denied the claims, citing clear rights of elected officials to prevent the spread of disease. Judge Domenico said the court, quote, must take care not to unnecessarily trespass on decisions that are properly within the purview of the state's and city's elected officials. This decision came down April 21st.
0: And the U.S. Supreme Court got involved just last week, so tell me about that.
9: In Pennsylvania, a coalition of businesses sued to stop business closures ordered by the governor, but the state Supreme Court backed the governor, and on May 5th, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to grant a stay of the closures, leaving them in place. Phil Weiser said he understands this is frustrating for people, and he expects this will continue to crop up in court cases around the country, but he believes officials are carefully weighing these decisions by conferring with medical and public health experts experts each step of the way.
7: It's very important that all government officials continue to ask themselves, are we justified in what we're doing? The restrictions that we're now dealing with are not trivial. They are causing huge disruption. It's essential that at every step we're asking, is the evidence justifying the restrictions? What we've seen here in Colorado is our governor continue to reevaluate restrictions, to lift restrictions when evidence can warrant it. That's exactly the sort of model that the law contemplates. And what is worth underscoring is this whole process is guided by and it's constrained by the rule of law.
0: Restrictions continue to evolve as the state and counties begin to open up the economy. Governor Polis has eased the stay-at-home order to safer at home. It allows more movement and some businesses to open, but his order still has pages of rules about how to do that. And several counties are retaining a stricter stay-at-home order, while others are asking to be less strict in the state. As people get out and see how this is working, what are you hearing through Colorado Wonders?
9: A lot of the questions we're getting are asking who's in charge of making people wear their masks in public or practice social distancing. Here's Cindy Letkman.
5: If people show up at a Colorado business without a mask now that we are reopening, can the business refuse entrance to that customer? I noticed that people are not wearing masks at grocery stores. Could it be emphasized to all businesses that are now open that wearing a mask is necessary? How is that going
0: to be enforced? Can businesses refuse service?
9: They sure can. You've heard of no shirt, no shoes, no service? Well, no mask, no service is absolutely allowed. And in fact, Phil Weiser said businesses are responsible for running a place that meets the requirements, so they may have to crack down on this with customers and employees. And our colleague Esteban Hernandez at Denverite talked to Denver business owners who were taking that very seriously. He spoke with Chris Donato, who's with Pizzeria Locale, who said the business intends to enforce the rule at its three Denver locations, no mask, no pizza. Donato said most of their business lately has been online ordering and delivery, but as they move to add the pickup option, masks will be crucial.
2: The way that it works Mm -hmm. is all guests need to have a mask. So you can still come in off the street and say, hey, I want a cheese pizza. And, you know, as long as you're wearing a mask, we'll happily make you that cheese pizza Uh, you can grab it and be on your way.
9: There's one important caveat. If a store is going to deny service to people who don't wear masks, they need to do it across the board, not pick and choose who doesn't get served, so they don't risk running afoul of civil rights protections.
0: How will the state and local officials police these orders?
9: Policing will be a combination of efforts. Citizens can report to a state hotline or their county health department if they see businesses or their own workplace failing to comply. Even then, though, state and local officials said they would prefer to educate people rather than write citations. Attorney General Weiser told me that the state hotline got more than 4,000 calls through April, mostly people reporting a non-essential business that was open or that an essential business was not following safe practices. He said in almost every case, his office would contact the business and they said, oh, we're sorry, we'll stop. But the state has issued cease and desist orders a few times, most notably when Hobby Lobby refused to comply with the orders in March. And the state has shut down some businesses, like the restaurant in Castle Rock that I mentioned the governor shut down yesterday. POLIS also just created a new board, the Committee for Cooperation and Implementation. It's made up of state and local officials, mayors, police chiefs, health department leaders. They'll advise POLIS on ways to use both education and enforcement as needed to ensure that public health orders are effective. POLIS also referred to this as the new normal committee And that is what we're going to be sorting out for a while with these rules around coronavirus.
0: Kelly, thank you for being here.
9: Thank you, Avery.
0: Kelly Griffin oversees CPR's Colorado Wonders Project. Answering your questions about the state, you can submit questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. When we come back, the mental toll the pandemic is taking on people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call Member Services to update your card information at 800-722-4449.
0: Social distancing, stress related to the pandemic, and uncertainty about the future is taking its toll on Coloradans' mental health. Nearly three times as many people meet the criteria for major depressive disorder than before COVID-19. Researchers are trying to better understand the impact. Here's CPR's Claire Cleveland.
8: When Governor Jared Polis declared a statewide stay-at-home order in early April, Desiree Newton of Loveland knew it was going to be tough. I just feel like with this being stuck at home and feeling so isolated, that
5: on top of the fact that I already struggle with depression has just kind of pushed me over the edge and now little things that never used to bother me are bothering me.
8: She's not alone. Researchers at the Colorado School of Public Health have found that more than 20% of Coloradans surveyed met the criteria for major depressive disorder. Pre-pandemic, only about 7% of the U.S. met the criteria. One of the researchers, Jennifer Jewell, program manager for the Population Mental Health and Wellbeing Program, wanted to study the changes to people's psychological well-being throughout the pandemic. So much of our physical health is dependent on our mental health. And even if you want to make an impact in cardiac disease, it's important that the people that are trying to improve their cardiac health also have good mental health, because if you're depressed, you're really unlikely to go outside and exercise. Part of the inspiration for the study came from people close to her. As I was listening to you know my friends talking about how this was affecting them and how it was harder for different aspects of the population, the people that are homeschooling, the people that have lost their jobs. It was having a lot of mental health effects that they were voicing on social media. Jewel and the other researcher, Jen Leiferman, who directs the program, developed a survey asking people about their mental health and what they're doing to take care of themselves. The survey is circulating online, and people from all over the world have responded. As they've crunched the initial results, Leiferman said one group stood out. So our highest depression and anxiety and stress were among the younger individuals. We did see heightened rates of
5: depression and anxiety, and and quite a few people reported being stressed more than they typically would have been before COVID-19.
8: Newton said it's true of her two adult children. Both are living with her for the time being and are struggling with their own stress.
5: There are days where you could tell all of us were not doing well. You know, just all the way around. It was like, I don't know, I guess zombie land. The three of us just kind of being in the house together and nobody saying anything and worrying about each other but not really being able to be a support to each other.
8: To make it through, Newton says she's been watching a lot of Netflix and trying to make small plans that help her cope with the day-to-day. Jewel says that in Colorado, many people reported watching more TV and movies, but also by doing other things. I think it's good to see that a lot of people are using healthy coping mechanisms like exercise,
5: reading, yoga, to be able to work through those mental health issues. I
8: think it's also a healthy thing that we want to encourage in the population, and we want to be able to teach people how to better do that. The researchers plan to keep the study open for a few more weeks until the country starts to reopen more broadly. Then, they'll analyze their results, which they hope will give health practitioners a better idea of what folks may need as the pandemic lingers on. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News.
0: The study, which is still open, can be found online at populationmentalhealth.org. It will be open for a few more weeks while the researchers continue to gather information. The last few months have left us all with a lot to process, from the big economic and health disruptions to the way a simple visit to the grocery store has changed drastically. A Denver arts nonprofit is hoping people will write it all down. Stained Arts is hosting a virtual journaling workshop to help get people started. Noah Kaplan, Stained Arts founder and artistic director, is teaching. Welcome, Noah.
10: Hey, Avery. Thanks for having me.
0: Journaling is one of those things like getting more exercise or eating more salad that sounds like a good thing to do, but it can be hard to make time. Why do you think it's particularly important for people to keep journals now?
10: That's a great question. Um, I think that throughout history, human beings have often been faced with these um, huge challenges or giant shifts in how the society is organized. Um, we have lots of examples of journals and diaries that have made their way into uh, our canon. And they're usually the value in them is that they allow us to identify the lessons from an experience or a catastrophe Um, And they let us kind of process and move forward through that. If we don't have the reflective personal stories that um, are affecting the individual human, uh, we kind of are left with a lot of tragedy and a lot of um, statistics. And um, we can watch as uh, we become kind of overwhelmed by that larger context. You know, a lot of the lessons and the learning that come from these difficult moments in history come from the individual, reflecting, processing, and then imagining. Uh, And the workshop is really geared towards helping people do those things.
0: Like you said, historians look to journals that people kept during turbulent times. You've been particularly inspired by Eddie Hilsom. Who was she and why do you draw in her journal for your workshop?
10: It's a great question. Um, Eddie Hilsom is a really phenomenal, extraordinary human being and figure in history. Uh, She grew up and kind of came of age around the time that the Nazis rose to power in Europe. Um, She was 27 years old when um, the Nazis invaded Amsterdam. And uh, coincidentally, she actually lived only a few blocks from the attic that Anne Frank uh, also began starting her diary around the same time. But Eddie is really interesting because Eddie was a little bit older And Eddie was a very urbane, very intelligent, um, very social human being that watched as her world kind of became more and more restricted. And she was starting to grapple with um, her proximity to suffering and the suffering that looked as though was inevitable for all the people that she knew. And one of the things that I love about Eddie Hilson's journal, aside from the fact that it is beautiful writing. Um, is that Eddie processes this experience. There's a lot of parallels to be drawn between you know, our current circumstance and, and the restrictions she was starting to notice as the war ramped up. But more importantly, uh, Eddie really took the time to process the, uh, the experience of, of being there mm-hmm. and decided really consciously that she was going to stay um, and she came from a privileged family, a family that may have had an opportunity to leave and to escape. And even when her fate seemed, um, you know, uh, that, that she was going to kind of fall uh, in the same fate as many of her countrymen, she decided to stay and to do her best to relieve as much suffering as she could. And that idea, um, that story is so inspiring And it's a good reminder that if we don't have stories like that, if we don't have our human, uh, the the processing of the individual, we're left with just kind of the numbers and the tragedy. And um, Eddie is a very inspiring story and and her writing is very beautiful. But I think what what most draws me to that particular diary is um, her approach to uh, catastrophe and that we all don't need to um, approach it the same
0: way. And Eddie Hilsom, she died in Auschwitz, and we know all of this about her life because she kept that journal. You've taught this journaling workshop once before during the pandemic, and one of the things you encourage participants to do is to write down specific events, more than amorphous feelings. So here's a journal entry a past participant Ainsley O'Neill shared.
4: Ugh, I use the last of those greens. Is it silly to go to the store just for greens? I guess I need toothpaste as well. Is it silly to go to the store just for greens and toothpaste? I wrestle with myself over this question. My teeth are still not brushed. My iron levels are plummeting, as indicated by the chill in my fingers. It's time to go. I second-guess every decision. Are open-toed shoes sanitary? Earrings over or under the face mask? Is this pocket deep enough to hold my hand sanitizer? Will long sleeves pick up more germs, the way that the cuff of a sweater emerges with dust bunnies after reaching for the forgotten tea mug under the bed?
0: So O'Neill talks about her fears here, but she also talks about the mechanics of her trip to the grocery store. A pocket full of hand sanitizer, long sleeves or short sleeves. Why do you encourage people to include these details?
10: Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, we're looking for uh, the individual experience and um, the understanding that everybody is experiencing things a little bit differently and that those idiosyncrasies are what make writing interesting. Um, and those idiosyncrasies are what make us unique as human beings. And it's a way for us to kind of really get down to processing not just what's Uh, We're ingesting through the media and and what's being kind of the narrative that's being told to us, but to develop our own narrative and that the, the details of that narrative are what make it interesting and transformative and to better understand ourselves through that process.
0: Now, like we said earlier, I think a lot of people have aspired to journal at some time or another and have at least one blank notebook collecting dust on a shelf. What advice do you have for people who feel stuck before they even start?
10: Yeah, that's also a great question. And 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 main focus of the workshop is to show people just how much you have to write about. Um, I think that the most important thing that you can do when facing a blank page is to just write. Um, You know, there's lots of ways to go about doing that, whether it's listing your gratitudes to start with or cataloging your experiences from the day before you'll often find that really profound, um, interesting things can come from just the explorations of our everyday. And of course, I recommend getting together with folks and sharing because that in and of itself is is the little push that a lot of us need. So participating in online workshops, um, starting a writing practice with a friend of yours, um, doing morning pages. So the first thing you do when you wake up is to write some things down. All of those things help us get past the um, the crisis of an, a blank page um, but yeah just to just to try and quiet your sensor and work through
0: Thanks so much for joining me Noah.
10: Yeah thank you Avery.
0: Noah Kaplan teaches a virtual workshop on journaling during the pandemic at Stained Arts, a Denver nonprofit, where he is a co-founder and artistic director. You can find more information about the workshop, which begins on May 18th on Instagram, at Stained Arts. That's at Stained without an E, Arts. After the break, instrument makers collaborate to help musicians who can't play live shows right now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Some families are spending a lot of time together because of the stay-at-home order. But families are also separated from grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. So CPR News is getting different generations to read together as a way to connect cross-country or across the hall. I'm Ryan Warner, inviting you to turn the page with Colorado Matters.
1: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
6: We've chosen a middle grade book by Lindsay Lackey, who grew up in Colorado Springs.
0: All the Impossible Things tells the story of Red, an 11-year-old girl in foster care in Denver, Colorado, who accidentally causes tornadoes when she's upset.
6: Order All the Impossible Things through the tattered cover or wherever you like to get books. Then join us the evening of May 20th for a live video Q&A with the author. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page.
0: The live music industry is on hold indefinitely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Countless musicians worldwide have no gigs and no idea when they might return to the stage. Our next guests are using their downtime productively. Jacob Brillhart is a violin maker based in Vermont, and Evan Orman, a bow maker in Denver. They've donated a violin and bow to an online auction. The proceeds will go to musicians with what they call canceled livelihoods. Jacob and Evan, hello.
1: Hello, Avery. Hi, how's it going?
0: Okay, thank you. You're both musicians living in a world without live music, at least as we've typically known it. What is the landscape like for you and your fellow musicians? Jacob, why don't you go first?
1: It's a, it's a really tough time right now for musicians. Uh, you know, I, I play myself, but not, you know, most of my income comes from violin making. So, you know, as soon as the pandemic hit, everybody's gigs were immediately canceled. And, you know, that's really terrifying for a lot of people because that's their entire source of income. And now there's just no way for those folks to, to make money. So it's, a, it's definitely a scary time.
0: Yeah. And Evan, what are you seeing?
1: Well, I have lots and lots of friends who are
2: gigging musicians. So the opera uh, season is canceled. The ballet season is canceled. Um, Boulder Philharmonic, all the kind of regional orchestras. And, you know, even the Colorado Symphony was furloughed for a while. I think they're being paid again. But yeah, it's been really tough. The rug was kind of pulled out from underneath everybody, I think, on this.
0: We'll get more into that situation of what life is like for musicians during the pandemic and what you guys are doing to help in a moment. But first, Jacob, I want to know, what was life before lockdown like for a professional violin maker?
1: Um, it's really not all that different before or after the lockdown. Um, I work from my home, uh, my shop is in my house. And so, you know, most days pandemic or no pandemic, I'm just sitting at the bench, uh, working away on a violin, um, you know, and it takes a long time to make a violin. It takes around a month or sometimes a little more. And so, you know, I have a lot of quiet time, a lot of peaceful time to myself. Interestingly enough, you know, the day to day doesn't, doesn't all change that much for me.
0: I also have to ask, how are instrument sales doing in all of this?
1: Um, well, I mean, every shop in the country is, is closed, basically. Uh, you know, and vi- violins are a an object that, uh, you know, you have to touch and you have to put it right against your face to try it out. And so it's, um, you know, not only you, you can't really... You know, first off, you can't even walk downtown and head head into the violin shop. And second off, it's you know it's kind of difficult at this time to for a bunch of folks to try out a bunch of instruments. So, um, you know, things are the things are kind of on a standstill right now. I think.
0: Evan becoming a violin bow maker isn't a common career choice. You've estimated there may be sixty in the U.S. How did you get into it?
2: My. Family is musical. Uh, my parents are both artists, but my mom was also a piano teacher, and my dad built instruments as an amateur. But he was a really good maker. He built a lot of guitars and some violins and violas. So I sort of grew up around his workshop, and always was fiddled around with things. My training is as a cellist, and um, I went to graduate school in Boston at the New England Conservatory. And after a couple years there in the early nineties, I actually was shopping for a bow and kind of got interested in bows. They're, they're actually a little bit more fascinating than people realize.
0: Okay. Tell me something fascinating about a bow that people wouldn't realize.
2: Well, you know, for a functional tool, there's a, there's a lot of style and expression that the makers have to economically apply to the design of the bow. And, I don't know, I just really appreciate those things. I, th- I think, um, you know, the history of the bow is interesting. And so, yeah, the whole thing interested me. And I started doing it in the early 90s. Um, there wasn't really anywhere to study. Uh, There's a local maker, um, David Russell Young, in the Boulder area who helped me a lot.
0: Jacob, you've contributed a violin to that auction we mentioned that will raise money for out-of-work musicians. How did you get involved in that?
1: Basically, when, when the pandemic uh, hit, you know, and all my friends and acquaintances lost their gigs is a scary time. I couldn't help but be anxious for my own place and, and everything. Um, and so as I was sitting at home in my shop, I was trying to figure out a way that I that I could help folks out in a way that I could work on a project that would be meaningful and relevant in this time. And so the first thing that kind of just came to me was, well, you know, I can make a violin and I can raffle it off and um, the proceeds would help musicians who who needed aid money and that was kind of the birth of the idea. And then I I contacted some friends. And as soon as I started making phone calls, the project just kind of took on this life of its own. And, and a lot of folks who heard about it got really enthusiastic and helped out in tremendous ways.
0: And while you're building this violin, you live streamed it all on Facebook. And this was a demanding job. You're putting in 16-hour days. Why let people in on that process?
1: As I was doing the woodworking, I thought everyone's stuck at home. And feeling really isolated. And so if I live streamed the, the process of making the violin, it would be a way for people to connect. It'd be a way for people to virtually spend time with me, you know, put me on in the background and, and go about their daily business while I was you know, there on their screen, you know, working on a, on a violin. It was It was a way to make the whole project feel immediate to people and you know, feel like something that connected us all. So that was kind of the idea behind that. It ended up being a really exhausting process. Um, You know, feeling watched for that many hours a day uh, (laughs) is, is really great, but it's also kind of scary at times.
0: Let's hear what a Jacob Brillhart violin sounds like. This is Jason Anik performing the song Sleepless on one of your instruments. Colorado Matters, our guests Jacob Brillhart and Evan Orman have built a violin and violin bow to support out-of-work musicians. Evan, you've never met Jacob. How did you end up working on the violin bow as a part of the auction?
2: A really good bowmaker friend of mine in Vermont. It's a little confusing because my name's Evan and his name's Evan. So if you have a Spanish accent, it's very difficult. But um, he's a fantastic maker Evan and Jake were, you know, have been good friends for for quite a long time, and Jake approached Evan about live streaming the bow making process, you know, the way he was uh, live streaming the violin building process, and and Evan, you know, being a sensible guy, wasn't <laughs> wasn't sure about that, and so he called he called me one day at work, and um, you know, it's kind of the end of the afternoon, and I was walking home, and he told me what this project was and what they were hoping to accomplish, and I just thought it sounded really cool and kind of in the bow making community a lot of us you know occasionally collaborate with a friend and divide up the task of making a bow we just thought it would be fun so so he ended up making the the fittings which are the frog and the button um they're the parts on the end of the bow where you where you kind of hold on to it and ebony silver and pearl almost like a little bits of jewelry down there that hold the hair and then um, allow you to tension the hair. He made those, put them in a box and sent them to me. And I actually picked out a few sticks and then we had a little conference and decided which one we were gonna use. And I made a stick and mounted his fittings on and sent everything back to him. Yeah, we managed to get it finished, so.
0: That's such an enchanting view into the world of bow making, (laughs) just imagining the conference to decide which stick becomes the bow. Um, (laughs) Did you end up live streaming the process as well?
2: Uh, No, no. When we were talking about it, we figured that that would be hours of people watching me crawl around on the floor looking for little things that I had dropped. (laughs) and, (laughs)
0: Um, And I understand that you each took inspiration for your work from crafters who worked during particularly turbulent times in history. Evan, first tell us about this bow and where in history you drew some inspiration from.
2: We based the design of our bow on a French bow maker named Etienne Peugeot, who was who lived in the city of Miracour. Um, it was a big center of violin making and bow making. Peugeot was a very um, stylish maker. His, the design of his bows was beautiful. Um, he used really really lovely materials, um, you know, beautiful looking ebony and pernambuco, and um, and just had a, like a kind of a technical finesse that wasn't.
1: Really, that common, you know, in that time. So
0: yeah, and Jacob, what about for the violin?
1: Yeah, so I'm making this violin in the model of uh, uh, Gornaria del Gesu, uh, who is a maker. Who uh, lived in Cremona, Italy, in the early 1700s? Um, he came from a long family of violin makers and was actually grew up on and lived on the street where the violin was invented, essentially. And Guarneri del Gesu had, a, for whatever reason, lived in poverty, um, and he had he survived often by borrowing money from other violin makers at the time. Um, but it's a kind of an amazing story because his, every violin he made, uh, he'd work in this quick really tense way, um, probably because he was trying to finish that violin and sell it to pay his bills uh, and buy food. And now these violins, you know, they're some of the very best sounding violins in the world and they're, you know, they're worth millions and millions of dollars because they're such great instruments. But there's this this awesome balance there with with Granary's instruments where they're unique. Each one is, is individual. Each one is this, this product of the moment that he was working in. You can kind of get a sense of the intensity of his daily life through his instruments. And therefore, I thought that it would be a, you know, a perfect instrument for now when, when we're, you know, everyone is kind of experiencing similar emotions.
0: And you're both instrument makers. I know that you play music as well. What has music meant to you during this time where the world just seems so upside down? You know it's hard because the way I
1: experience music mostly is by playing with other people, um, and I can't really do that at all now. Um, it's difficult. It's it's uh, you know it's it's depressing. It's a big part of my life that I just don't have access to right now. How how, how are you feeling about it, Evan? Yeah, the same. It's it's really tough
2: to not be able to hear um, live musicians and to be able to play music live. People have been doing really cool projects on, you know, on social media, um, you know, recording with people in other places or colleagues from their orchestras that they don't see every day. Um, You know, things like that are are fun and, and interesting, and it's great to see what people are doing, but it doesn't take the place of a live performance or, you know, just the experience that musicians and audiences get from hearing music live.
0: Yeah. Do you think the live music experience will significantly be different when it does return?
2: Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. I I don't want to be a downer about this, but but I I kind of feel like things like symphony orchestras are, are, it's going to be very tough because, you know, the audiences are big and the audiences, you know, for symphony orchestras tend to be older. There's going to be a a big challenge there. And, you know, I, I think the world's already a little bit of a tough place for for live music and particularly, you know, like symphonic classical music. So, but we'll, but we'll see, you know, people are awfully smart when they need to be and innovative. So we'll see what happens.
0: Well, thank you both so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank
1: you, Avery. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Jacob Brillhart is a violin maker based in Vermont, and Evan Orman is a bow maker in Denver. They teamed up together to donate a violin and bow to an online auction which runs through May 15th. Find more info at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.